All right. Well, glad to have you guys all back. Glad to have some new faces as well. This is a great class to pop in just uh, for even a single week. So remember, invite your friends if they want to come for just one week. Um, so last week, uh, we looked primarily at Augustine um, in the fall of Rome. Any remember, anyone remember anything unique or interesting about Augustine that stood out to you? Confessions. His confessions. Yep. And you went and read Confessions this week, Keshav? No, I, I, I just tried to read, but that book, uh, only two, three pages. But you actually did. Like, that's awesome. I bet that's more than, than anyone else here. Did anyone else read more than two to three pages of Confessions this past week? I started rereading it. But I love the start of his Confessions. I love the praise that he yeah. No, because it's a prayer. It's, it's a prayer mm, to yeah. God that he writes the way he writes it. Yeah. It's, awesome. it's very devotional as well. It, he takes you along in wanting to think about God in the same way he does. Yeah. yeah. And thinking about his childhood from, from a perspective of being, you know, the, the adult Christian is also very interesting. For me. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he definitely, he seems to understand it, like, and interpret it well. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah. It's a good book for parents to read. <laughs> His mum is a great model of faithful prayer and gospel, kind of sharing the gospel with her son. <laughs> yeah. Any other thoughts on Augustine? Anything that stood out to you guys? Fine, you don't have to, it's just a question. Just wanting to give people space to share if they have something. So you mentioned last time that he used uh, state power to uh, suppress her, like heresies that were yeah. like how how it went like Yeah, he encouraged the use of state force to put down the Donatist heresy. I I didn't do research on the details, um, but I think it's one where right the problem of that is even if like he didn't kill them, if it was just that they used state power like that, that incident and his logic behind it was used to argue for basically all times in the future church where that happened. So in Spain with inquisitions. Um, or with, like, even, like, I mean, during the Reformation on both sides, right, there was all kinds of state force used to put down um, heresies or people that disagreed, wanting the Bible in the English language, for instance. Um, so, sadly, really bad effects from it, no matter what. Yeah. yeah. So, primarily focused on Augustine and also the fall of Rome. And the fall of Rome um, is what has a lot of impact on what we're looking at today. And just to make sure that we're clear, when we talk about the fall of Rome, we're not just talking about the fact that the city of Rome itself was sacked. But remember we talked about how um, with Constantine as emperor, um, one of the things he did was he united the East and Western Empire into one empire. Um, but even after him, then there continued to be these different splits within the empire. Um, and really the split between the East and the Western Empire resulted in the Western Empire was the one that basically fell first. The Eastern Empire stayed around for almost a thousand years longer. 
but the Western Empire kept on splitting into smaller different polities um, and basically continued to have like fights over who would have control of different regions. So that's really what we mean when we talk about the fall of Rome is the decline of the Western Roman Empire. Um, so this week we're going to take a look at some of the developments after Augustine um, through the medieval period, touching on both the Eastern and Western church. And as a way of introducing this, uh, I want to make three opening comments and give you six reasons why we should study the Middle Ages. So first for the opening comments, <clears throat> I want to begin uh, with an overgeneralization. And that's this. Most broad sweeping statements about the Middle Ages are overgeneralizations. <laughs> and so we have to remember, this is a time period that's covering close to a millennia. It's from the 5th century all the way to the 15th century. And it's across several cultures, languages, and places. So it's very broad. It's hard to make comments that are true of all of that. And so this class will primarily look at the European medieval church um, and also touch on some of the theological developments in the Near East. Uh, if you do want to learn more um, about that, um, I think we can actually point you towards some other resources that Capitol Hill Baptist has um, on more of uh, the global church history during this period. They have a global hist Christian history course seminar. Second comment. Um, this is not the Dark Ages, as it has been negatively called. So the Middle Ages boasts of several accomplishments, such as the Magna Carta. Uh, lots of arguments for human rights are being established and articulated. And additionally, this period marks the founding of several prominent universities that are still leading institutions today, um, such as Oxford, um, where my wife is from, and also Cambridge. Uh, additionally, it's during this period that we see the rise of hospitals being established. Um, and so really, it's not fair to consider this the Dark Ages. Third, the medieval time was the historical context in which some of the most consequential theologians in church history lived. So these are theologians such as Anselm of Canterbury, who lived from 1033 to 1109, John Wycliffe, from 1328 to 1384, Thomas Aquinas, uh, 1224 to 1274, Bernard of Clairvaux, 1090 to 1153, Bonaventure, 1221 to 1274, and maybe we'd even consider Martin Luther, who was from 1483 to 1546, right at the end of the Middle Ages. So while each of these theologians are very important in their own right, um, we'll focus primarily on Anselm, Bernard of Clairvaux, and Thomas Aquinas this morning. Next week we'll Take a look at some of the reformational forerunners such as Wycliffe and Huss. All right, so now let me offer six reasons why um, us as evangelical Christians ought to study the European medieval church. So first, the medieval church, despite several issues, remained steadfastly committed to the authority of Scripture. Um, 
One of the ways this is seen is in the requirements of theologians to comment on the Bible. Uh, Carl Truman uh, explained it this way. It is the ignorance and snobbery of modern Protestantism which derides the Middle Ages for a failure to engage with the text of Scripture. The average medieval professor was expected to have exegeted his way through more Scripture before he was deemed remotely competent as a theologian than any seminary professor in North America today. Mm -hmm. So they did care about Scripture. Second... uh, Hergis Fur uh, documents that Thomas Aquinas, right, one of the guys we'll focus on, he wrote or dictated over 8 million words. That's just hard to imagine. But 25% of those words were directly commenting on biblical texts. Yeah. Kind of raises questions for their 75%, but yeah. it's there as well. Third, um, we see a lot of continuity with the reformers. So many arguments actually developed in the Middle Ages uh, ended up forming the backbone of much of the reformed thought. So a few examples of this. um, Theologians during this time defended doctrines of divine simplicity, um, God's immutability. Um, Also, there's continuity with the ecumenical creeds. Um, as well as with Augustinian Trinitarianism. Remember we talked about his tome, um, De Trinitat. Uh, Fourth, during the Middle Ages, many sought to develop uh, doctrinal synthesis. Um, They were aiming to have a systematic theology. Um, And so to be sure, some of these systems led readers away from scriptural belief. But many of these aim to draw the teachings of Scripture together. Um, Theirs was the belief that the mind should be used to know God based on his revelation. So think about how this is different from how a lot of, we hear about a lot of like emotive theology today, where it's really just trying to think about how you feel about it, as opposed to really understanding God with your mind. Uh, Fifth, evangelism and missions. So many of the monastic orders uh, that uh, grew up during this period were often fervent evangelists. Uh, A monk named Augustine, for instance, was commissioned by Gregory the Great to take Christianity with 40 monks to Great Britain. Sixth, theologians in the Middle Ages remained committed to traditional forms of belief and methods of studying theology. Um, such commitments to tradition can thwart reform, um, as we'll see actually in the following weeks, but commitment to tradition can also thwart heresy. So consider, for instance, a contrasting example um, with what it looks like to get a PhD today. So in today's universities, a PhD is earned when you come up with a new novel idea, and you have to generate that and then defend it. In medieval times, doctoral work was considered based on its consistency with tradition and orthodoxy. So, really kind of a benefit at times as well. So these are just a few of the reasons why it's worthwhile to study the medieval church. So let's take a look at a few of the developments that took place in the West. 
Remember, this class is covering a millennia of church history. So we'll briefly think about the bookends. First is the fall of Rome. Right, we covered some of that last week. And then on the far end, we have the Reformation, which we'll be covering in a few weeks. Of all the important developments during this time, for our purposes, we're going to highlight two primary developments. First, the rise of monasticism. And second, the beginning of the Holy Roman Empire. And listen to this, the Holy Roman Empire, not to be confused with the former Roman Empire. Two different things, very similar names. So in reaction to both the fall of Rome and further examinations of the spoils of the Roman Empire, many monastic orders developed in the first millennia of the church. Um, most of them were following a version of the Benedictine rule, which was written in the 5th century. Uh, some of these orders were ways to refrain from sinfully engaging in worldly pursuits and pleasures and living a life devoted to specific practices and intellectual pursuits. But not all monastic orders were the same. <clears throat> the Cistercians, this is one of the things you'll probably notice in this class. We're going to deal with a lot of examples of Evan can't pronounce things. So let's just enjoy that. The Cistercians, founded in 1098, grew very quickly. Uh, they were also a Benedictine movement that aimed to reform the will of adherents. So trying to change what they desired. So a notable alum of this movement is Bernard of Clairvaux. Bernard and the Cistercians did not live separate from the world. Instead, they called for political reforms and confronted the poor conduct of bishops and abbots. Um, Bernard wrote the hymn, O Sacred Heart Now Wounded. Uh, the Franciscan Order uh, started around 1209, or they were called Grey Friars. They aimed to cultivate humility, uh, as they were primarily concerned with the pride that was rampant amongst leaders. Francis of Assisi is perhaps the most popular monk of this period um, in this order. And Francis and others took an interest in the evangelization of Muslims. And so during the Crusades, for instance, Francis actually went with the Crusaders uh, and actually found opportunities to cross enemy lines in order to share um, with the Muslim leaders on the other side. Amazingly, successfully in terms of not being killed. Mm. Yeah. In 1216, the Dominicans, the Dominican order was started. Um, this order held that all monks should be preachers. And so they established an order of preaching brothers. Um, they weren't actually recognized as Benedictine. They were recognized following more the Augustinian rule. So Augustine also <clears throat> had a movement, uh, took, took part in some of the setting up of some monasteries in North Africa. Uh, and he actually wrote a small rule as well for how to handle being a monk. His was much shorter than the Benedictine rule. Uh, in the Dominicans' preaching and teaching, they sought to rigorously defend Catholic orthodoxy of that period. And they would later be placed in charge of the Inquisition. So a little bit of a blot um, on their resume. And Thomas Aquinas uh, belonged to that order. 
So as we discussed last week, the Roman Empire had seen a period of divided rulership. So Constantine, you remember, was crowned the sole emperor, and then his sons after him inherited a divided kingdom. And variations of this pattern would play out for several centuries, uh, even as the Roman Empire became a pale reflection of what it used to be. <clears throat> then things finally changed with Charlemagne, probably a name you've heard before. So Charlemagne became the sole ruler over much of Europe in 778. Uh, he pursued reclaiming much of the land that was lost to the Goths. And his plan was to remake the empire under the banner of Christianity. Upon his conquest, many pagans were forced to convert to Christianity and be baptized. And due to his successes, after several years, despite protests from the Greeks in the East, Pope Leo III crowned Charlemagne Emperor of the West on Christmas Day in the year 800. The East refused to recognize him as emperor. One thing that's interesting to note, upon crowning Charlemagne, Pope Leo III bowed, prompting the question, who submits to whom? This is going to be an important question in the Middle Ages. Does political authorities submit to church authorities, or does church authorities submit to political authorities? Uh, although it didn't bear the name in Charlemagne's day, Charlemagne's rise and coronation would start what would later become known as the Holy Roman Empire. <clears throat> so from the second century onward, differences in theology and practices slowly began emerging between the Western Latin-speaking part of the church and the Eastern Greek-speaking part of the church. From the fall of the Roman Empire in 410, the eastern and western wings of the universal church began increasingly drifting apart. Um, it's not until 1054 when it's traditionally regarded as the point of official division or schism between the east and west, east and west but there were divisions that took place all along that point. Um, the Bishop Timothy Ware recounts the, events, uh, recounts the events of the schism being formalized in this way. He says, one summer afternoon in the year 1054, as a service was about to begin in the Church of the Holy Wisdom, that's the Hagia Sophia um, in Constantinople or Istanbul, Turkey, Cardinal Humpert and two other legates of the Pope entered the building and made their way up to the sanctuary. They did not come to pray. They placed a bull of excommunication upon the altar and marched out once more. As he passed through the western door, the cardinal shook the dust from his feet with the words, Let God look and judge. A deacon ran out after him in great distress and begged him to take back the bull. Humbert refused, and it was dropped in the street. Do any of you guys know what a bull is when it's referring to like something related to the church? It's not the animal. It's not the animal. He didn't come and place like a... An idol on the altar. Yeah. No. Oh, it's like a dead, dead no, cow. <laughs> no, not not a dead cow. Okay. It's it's based. Oh, sorry. It's a papal decree. Exactly. It's basically just an official papal decree. Um, very official. Very important. And so apparently they call it a bull. Yeah. yeah. 
New word. So what did it say? Uh, it basically told them that <clears throat> like they were excommunicated. So they were not the church. Yeah. So the Pope was excommunicating the entire Eastern Church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Church discipline. That's radical. On a grand scale. Yeah. <laughs> That's radical. Yeah. Seems a little difficult. A little confusing how, how you can do that so broadly. But Which Pope was that? Um, that I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, and why did he do that? Um, basically, it's a result of the, the divisions that were taking place between East and West. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll dig in a little bit more to the causes shortly. But that's a fantastic question. Sinful yeah. humanity. <laughs> and that's a, a simple and wholly true answer. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> So the marriage between the East and West Church uh, became irreconcilable in 1204, so even further after this excommunication, um, when Western troops from the Fourth Crusade sacked Constantinople. So it's basically a failed crusade, and they ended up sacking this Eastern capital of the church. Um, And obviously, that ruined that. No, No opportunity for reconciliation after that. So as Sharon so aptly asked, what were the causes of this split? Um, A historical assessment leads us to say that there is not one single issue uh, that drove the wedge between the churches in the East and West. Political and church differences largely caused the schism, although entirely differentiating politics, polity, and theology is almost impossible. The East saw the true Christian empire centered in Constantinople and rooted in the history of the great emperors, Constantine, Theodosius, Justinian. Comparatively, the West saw itself as the heirs of the old Roman Empire. The East saw the Western Pope's crowning of Charlemagne on Christmas Day 800 as an act of schism. Additionally, right, the fourth major crusade that we talked about led by Western Pope Innocent III, included the conquest and plundering of Constantinople. And that action really sealed the fate of the schism. Reflecting on the causes, um, one famed 20th century historian said, the depths of the intellectual alienation that had developed over the centuries between the two sections of Christendom was the main cause. One of the key things, right, is that A lot of these differences came down to the West is speaking Latin and doing theology in Latin, and the East is speaking Greek and doing theology in Greek. And as they're trying to find ways of talking about theological things, they struggle to find the correct words. Remember we talked about homoousios and homoiousios? That was important. That's in Greek, right? And they're trying to explain that. That doesn't mean the same thing in Latin. In Latin, they're using a word for the person to describe like the three persons of the Trinity that there's no translation for into Greek. And so they're constantly misunderstanding each other. Uh, The Eastern Orthodox Bishop Timothy Ware reflects on the schism, writing, These political and cultural factors could not but affect the life of the church and make it harder to maintain religious unity. 
Cultural and political estrangement can lead only too easily to ecclesiastical disputes. But at its bottom, it was power and greed. <laughs> That's the simplest way of saying it, right? I think so. I mean, ultimately, like, the way they thought about authority, yeah. like, very different understandings um, of how I think, and we'll dig more into this later, but one of the big things, right, is you've got the, the Western church who are saying there is one pope. Yeah. Um, the Eastern church has a plurality of popes, yeah. of bishops, basically, that are in charge. But those bishops are ultimately under the emperor in the east and so there's actually a political figure who is at the top whereas in the west the pope is at the top and like that kind of difference like and if you're yeah whether power or greed is motivating it or if it's actually like a firmly held belief like those are irreconcilable The Western Church object, objected to what it saw as the Eastern setup, whereby the emperor rules the church. So the Eastern Church objected to what it saw as the Bishop of Rome attempting to rule the church. The Western Church argued that Matthew 16, right, Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom to Peter, and by implication his successor. Thus, Peter is to rule the church. Against such assertions, the Eastern Church argued as a historical fact the great ecumenical councils had largely, had largely been called not by the Bishop of Rome, but by the Emperor of Constantinople. You guys remember that? That was one of the benefits of um, Constantine basically making Christianity the official religion is it allowed for an emperor to then call these councils that allowed for decisions to be made on theological topics and to put down heresies officially and in a more global context. So it's like the, the politics and religion being so intertwined and then there being differences in how they should be intertwined, kind of like... Completely. Yeah. 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 Additionally, the 28th canon of the Council of Chalcedon in 451 granted Constantinople a special status and privilege on the grounds that Rome had a favored place in the early church due to Rome being the imperial city. Additionally, the East argued against the West's interpretation of Matthew 16, quoting, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The East said, This refers not to Peter alone, but to all with the confession of Peter. Um, if you guys have thought about this much, you might be familiar. This is actually the argument that, for instance, our church would make, um, that it's to all who confess along with Peter that the keys of the kingdom have been given. That's one of the reasons why we as a church are congregational, because all of us who confess the true gospel are a part of saying who is and who is not uh, officially a Christian and a part of the church. As the famed 20th century Eastern theologian John Mayendorf said, the whole ecclesiastical debate between East and West is thus reducible to the issue of whether the faith depends on Peter or Peter on the faith. Mm-hmm. All right, so it, even this idea of like the, poly, the polity behind it, it ultimately comes down to a biblical interpretation of a text. Mm-hmm. Other differences as well, though. <clears throat> Celibacy. 
The Western Church insisted on celibacy for priests, while the East resisted compulsive celibacy for priests. Mark's probably pretty glad that some people resisted that. (laughs) The East especially objected to the Western practice of dissolving marriages for those entering the priesthood. That seems like a good thing to object to. Like they would just like cease to be married? So, yeah, I mean, you're someone, a guy's in an unhappy marriage. Um, Maybe he should go for the priesthood because then he won't be married anymore. Yeah. Yeah, pretty sad situation. Icons. Um, Are you guys familiar with what icons are? As in a religious context. Images of the saints. Uh, images, yeah, images of saints or of Jesus or other biblical stories. Um, paintings, not three-dimensional, usually paintings on wood. So one definition, um, an icon is a religious work of art, most commonly a painting in the cultures of the Eastern Orthodox, Oriental Orthodox, and Catholic churches. They are not simply artworks. An icon is a sacred image used in religious devotion. The most common subjects include Christ, Mary, saints, and angels. Although especially associated with portrait-style images concentrating on one or two main figures, the term also covers most of the religious images in a variety of artistic media produced by the Eastern Christianity, including narrative scenes usually from the Bible or the lives of saints. So the early Christian church generally took a negative view of icons, though some did practice the use of icons. Gradually, Christians, especially in the Eastern tradition, began to see a right place for the veneration of religious icons. What is veneration? Veneration basically is like a step down from worship. So it's, in some ways, I think it's a it's a term that's helpful in order to distinguish from worship. So it's basically like honoring, but not worship is what they're trying to use that word to distinguish. Um, As we think about how this might have come about, though, that icons became a part of church practice, uh, it's somewhat reasonable when you consider it. Uh, You've got people who are many illiterate, um, trying to learn the biblical stories, um, they're able to hear it when it's preached, but at times not even in the language that they know. They're going to go into churches and see these paintings that are displaying biblical stories and see this as like an easy way to basically receive um, the biblical stories um, in a visual manner that they can ingest and understand more easily. You even see that today in some church buildings that have like yeah. stained glass windows with yeah. uh, n- narratives yeah. and stories of, or the Jesus Storybook Bible. Sure. Yeah. Um, so John of Damascus. We well, uh, wouldn't venerate those, but. Well, hard to know what they mean by veneration, though. Too, it's one where it's it's worthwhile to try to think through like what they mean by it, and that's one of the things that we'll be thinking through as we talk through this is trying to understand how that's used. And one thing I think it's also worth considering is how would the church define it, but then how would the normal people, practice people the, uh, understand it and about it? it? And over time, they wouldn't make the distinction between worshiping God and... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
I, I was told yesterday that one of the aunts of one of my Lebanese friends, that she has these saints in her and she puts these candles every time the lady travels, her aunt puts the candles in front of the images of the saints because now she's praying for safe travels. But who's she praying to? She's praying to the saints. She's not praying to God. Yeah. So that's... Yeah. yeah. I, it's important to think through, like, what the official teaching is, what people actually practice, and I think it's, it's helpful for us to think about those um, separately as well. Understand, like, the consequences that, like, some teachings are more likely to be distorted. But because they're likely to be distorted, that doesn't necessarily mean that we should throw out that teaching to begin with. It's one where even in our church, I'm sure that there's, if we go just talk to a church member, the way that they understand certain things or practice certain things is not going to align perfectly with the theology of the church and often even be heretical, like, at times. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's just one where the fact that some people um, don't understand something correctly isn't automatically a reason to say that it's entirely wrong. It is a reason to be cautious of it um, and to raise concerns, but I think we just want to be careful to be fair to what the theology actually is and then also be cautious of what the results could be. So John of Damascus, he lived from 650 to around 750, um, wrote on divine images to explain and defend the practice of venerating icons against the charge that it constituted the worship of matter instead of the worship of God. He said, I do not venerate matter. I venerate the fashioner of matter who became matter for my sake and accepted to dwell in matter and through matter worked my salvation. I do not reverence it as God, far from it. Around 752, a monk from Cyprus named Gregory defended icons by comparing them to scripture. Just as the person who venerates the sacred words in the gospel is not honoring parchment pages, but the holy teachings, so in the pictures of the church we are not venerating the color or the material surface, but a kind of holy explanation and a concise description of his sufferings. The debates about icons became really heated in response to the objection that venerating icons constitute idolatry. Theodore of Studios, uh, the abbot of the Studios Monastery in Constantinople, wrote, What person with any sense does not comprehend the distinction between an idol and an icon? In 726, the Eastern Emperor, Leo III, issued a decree ordering the destruction of images in churches. Uh, this, basically, this view that uh, icons should be put down and destroyed and gotten rid of is known as iconoclasm. Then in 754, the Eastern Roman Emperor Constantine V called the Council of Hyeria, which decidedly rejected icons and their use in worship. So two different points the Eastern Church um, has officially put down the use of icons. But then, the Second Council of Nicaea in 789 would challenge this position and strongly favor the use of icons. It held, revered and holy images may be set up, whether painted or of mosaic or other suitable material, in the holy churches of God, on sacred vessels and vestments, on walls and boards, in houses and along the roads, 
Images of our Lord and God and Savior Jesus Christ, and of our Immaculate Lady, the Holy Mother of God, of the Honorable Angels, and of all the saints and holy people. Empress Irene had a council summoned from September 24th to October 13th, 787. 263 bishops attended. This council would later be received by both the East and West as the Seventh Ecumenical Council. The council also anathematized those who refused to salute images in the name of the Lord, concluded that you should honor and venerate icons but not worship them. Then in 794, the Council of Frankfurt provided an occasion for the Far West to respond to the Second Council of Nicaea, rejecting its view and sharply disagreeing with the East on the use of icons. So basically, it's just going back and forth. Initially, icons start being used in the church. The Eastern Church ends up uh, in two different points, putting down the use. One time destroying them. Remember, the Eastern Church also, the emperor, has control over the church, so even excommunicating people um, who want to continue using icons. And then making an official decree as well that icons should not be used. But what ends up happening is that the people basically rebel against this. They're extremely unhappy. And right, it's the common people that icons are most helpful for or detrimental to, right? They, the ones that can't read, the ones who are less educated. And so they basically are rebelling against this idea. And so to try to bring the common people back in line, um, Empress Irene is a part of officially making icons um, available once again in the church. There's a lot of theological arguments as well going on with this. Um, on the opposing icon side, one of them is that you're thinking about, okay, it's clearly wrong or idolatry, right, to make an image of God. But what about Jesus who became incarnate? He became man, so he had, I mean, people saw him. They, he would have had a, looked a certain way, not much to look at apparently, um, but would have been entirely possible to paint a representation of him. But then they would say on the against side, they're saying you can't do that because to make a painting of Jesus, you can't paint the divine um, part of his nature. And so that's actually theologically heresy because you're only representing his human nature. But then it's kind of interesting. There's an argument then alternatively from those that are for icons that say, but wait, if you don't have pictures of Jesus, then you're saying that he is only divine and you're failing to understand his human nature. So we just made a whole mountain out of a molehill, basically. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's a pretty interesting one, just the way that people are thinking about it and what's going on. And does that, you know, does it all matter, you know, at the end of it? Isn't well, it, isn't it, this is devil's work to do this. Well, and it's one where it certainly just feels a lot easier for those of us who have never been interested in icons, that, that feels like the much easier thing. It's one where it'd be a lot harder, like for instance, if Mark was a pastor of a church that you know, had been using icons and all of a sudden he's feeling that this is not a helpful thing and having to deal with that. That would be really hard to try to like figure out how to take people away from that who are committed to this and believe that this is such a helpful part of their spirituality. It's, it's a hard thing to... Yeah. 
But of course, like like Evan said, and there are strong arguments for each side. Yeah. And so I think they would say not making a mountain out of a molehill, they're either saying like by by not permitting these things, you're keeping the common person from being able to be led mm -hmm. to worship Jesus. Mm -hmm. yeah. And by and on the other side, by saying we permit this, these things, some people would say you're breaking, breaking the second commandment, that you're making a graven image, that you're leading people to worship the creature rather than the creator, and you're actually cutting them off from God, and that's blasphemy, you know. So it, it's complex. It's complex, and it, it matters deeply to, the, to those that have strong convictions about it. Well, and even how you define it as well. So... It's one where, and it's also, I think it's important to remember too that there's a huge danger of outlawing things like that aren't clearly outlawed in scripture as well. Mm -hmm. So when we think about icons, like, um, you know, Michael's not here right now, but on the wall in his home, he has an icon of C.S. Lewis, sorry, a painting of C.S. Lewis. Um, and I think that's probably something that he finds quite helpful when he sees that. He's reminded of the work that C.S. Lewis has done, the way that he thinks about God, and is encouraged to try to think about God like C.S. Lewis. Well, Mark has got Calvin and Luther. <laughs> <laughs> uh, exactly. So, like, I mean, if we want to say, like, should icons be wholly outlawed? Like, can we not do that? Can we not do the Jesus Storybook Bible? Like, it, it's kind of hard to figure out where do we actually draw the line. Well, the line surely is, is not worshipping yeah. those pictures, those icons, yeah. those models, you know. And so notice that those that are for icons are repeatedly saying, we're not. Mm. They're saying, no, 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 like, we're not worshipping these. Mm. Like, we're worshipping Jesus. We're, we see this and are reminded of him and worship him. But it's one where, like, is that really what's taking place? It's one where, like, you might seem like, ah, you say that, but it really looks like you're worshiping an image. Mm. Yeah. Would you say that in that uh, era, they, um, like, other than Christians, they used art a lot to put in, to speak, to convey things? I mean, I think in general, yeah, like, Art was huge, and public art especially was huge, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, art, art throughout the life. I mean, the church has been, um, has commissioned a majority of the great works of Western art. Um, Even architecture is yeah. artistic in some ways, and there was, you know, there's lots of ways that yeah. that was used to create and communicate a certain kind of thing. Uh, inspire, point heavenward. Yeah. 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 There's definitely, yeah. Each of you should think more about this probably, but I think that it's a, a great example of there, it's something that it's difficult, like it's clear that not to worship, but it's difficult to say it should be wholly outlawed, but also to see that there's a lot of danger in it as well. Um, requires wisdom, and it's one where I definitely feel like we're in an easier situation um, where, you know, everyone, I believe, in our church is able to, to read 
um, in at least one language, many in multiple languages. Or get the audio Bible yeah. in their language too. Yeah. We have access to it and we don't lend ourselves towards that. We're not as, most of us are probably not as tempted to go towards images. Um, but it's interesting because yeah. if you go to Choitrums, which is only five minutes from here, and you go down one of the aisles, they do have images of Buddha and Jesus and mm -hmm. things yep. all together. Like, and obviously people worship those images. Yeah. Would you say it is similar to the divide um, that is with music? Like, hmm. uh, there is argument that, you know, uh, some churches worship with music, only with music. And that has become like an idol, idol trigger. And there is another argument that, you know, worship should be like. So I'm just saying, like, the way that they believe in yeah. yeah. You mean like with instruments and without instruments? Oh uh, no, just music in general, like just songs. Mm -hmm. uh, so some would say that that is evoking the emotional mm -hmm. things of it, and rather than you know, really worshiping. I'm just comparing like icons yeah. and without icons. So. Yeah. Hard for me to say exactly. I would think maybe one of the ways that that could be related is just trying to make absolutes of things that aren't absolutes biblically like mm. um, or try, like trying to apply a biblical principle in a way that maybe is too strongly being applied but it's mm. yeah it, it might be helpful to mention too that you know there is behind all of these different ways of worshiping um, there is a principle of that we hold to as a church called the regulative principle, which is that God has communicated to us how he desires to be worshipped by us. Mm -hmm. What things are permissible, what things are not permissible. And we even see that unfold through the through the scriptures. So if you if you go to Leviticus ten, I think I believe, it's like Nadab and Abihu offer they offer as an act of worship. And it doesn't mention any of their sincerity or lack of sincerity. They offer something that has not been has not been prescribed by by God, and they're immediately incinerated by fire, which seems like shocking to us. But um, just the idea that God cares about how we approach Him in worship. So even if even if you could build the case that someone's really benefited by and helped by icons if if you can if you can argue a case that they are not permissible it doesn't matter how helpful or beneficial that act would be yeah. it's still not permissible okay. but you'd have to build the case that these are not permissible yeah so, yeah just a question so when he says that you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. What's God forbidding? Yeah, so that's where like both sides of the argument interpret that differently. Um, those that are for icons are saying, this is referring to making uh, images that are representative of the gods of like the Old Testament, like peoples around Israel, and that they're clearly being told not to make uh, basically statues of these gods. Mm. 
Um, whereas what they're doing is not making statues of other gods. They're painting pictures representative of biblical stories and saints. Um, so an example would be in the Old Testament when they, when they create a golden calf, they do it actually more than once. And they say, this is Yahweh who saved you out of Egypt. Let's worship Yahweh. But they create an image to represent God in the form of a golden calf. So, yeah. Yeah. So but obviously I, you could read that and say, God doesn't permit any kind of, any kind of artwork at all. And I'm like, I'm breaking it by having, you know, this and that and that, you know, on the walls. Or which any obviously, artwork that portrays anything. Any of persons of the Trinity, like, some people interpret it that way, where it's like, oh, any artwork that portrays God the Father as, like, a figure with beams of light coming off, you know, or anyone that shows Jesus, like, yeah. he's part of the Godhead, so, you know, I don't know. Yeah, that's the argument of him being incarnate, makes him okay for iconography, because his humanity is depictable. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But... Uh, also, with the no graven image, um, you have to think about how the description of how to create the tabernacle included images. images. Yeah. So, well, images of things that were created, right? Yeah. So, like pomegranates and different things. Angels. Um, and so, it's one where, okay, well, clearly those were okay. So, there's, there's a line where, like, there's some sort of image that is okay and there's a line where there's some sort of image that's not okay but where that is drawn is the tough part is the answer. question yeah. yeah yeah but so it's just one to say that like yeah we're not gonna take the no graven image to say that mark's gotta get rid of all of his cool pictures of theologians and uh, star wars and hogwarts yeah. and things yeah <laughs> But it is something that. I mean, isn't it? The baseline is that God sees the heart and God knows how you're worshipping and what you're worshipping. I mean, that's certainly like what ultimately matters for the individual. Um, The difficult thing is that you're dealing with like structures and churches and people that are in charge of people, shepherding them and Mm. trying to direct them and. The fact that we're affected by what we see others do, and there's just the fact that we live in community and worship in community and all that kind of stuff makes these questions much more complicated um, than if we're just dealing on like someone who lives off on their own, like a hermit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, we've got to keep going. Yeah. But interesting questions to think through. Uh, so to understand more concretely the controversies of the 9th, 10th, and 11th centuries, we must return to a controversy of the 4th century. So the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed of 381 affirmed the divinity of the Father, Son, and Spirit. It further said about the Spirit, We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. Notice that, who proceeds from the Father. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. So the creed affirms that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, which is what John 15, 26 says. In 589, at the Second Council of Toledo in Spain, the Western Church revised this position 
which had been articulated by Augustine as to teach that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. In Latin, this is filioque, and the Son is said filioque in Latin. So remember, Augustine is the foremost figure in the Western Church, and he clearly taught that the Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son. So now the Western Church formally understood the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed of 381 to teach that the Spirit is proceeding from the Father and the Son, even though when it was initially written, it was only from the Father. So the Eastern Church strongly objected to this and argued that the West had unilaterally altered an authoritative Christian creed in a significant theological way, resulting in false belief. The East held that the Western view constituted subordinationism. Remember, that means that the Holy Spirit is less than the Father and Son. He's not equal in the Godhead. So that was a huge problem as well that brought about this distinction. Um, Some other different distinctives that ended up emerging um, in Eastern Orthodoxy. One of those is what's called apophatic theology. Um, This means beyond slash above words or ideas. And so the Eastern Church is known for the way of negation in theology. That is, in their understanding of God as the unfathomable mystery, it informs how they speak about God. So rather than positively saying that God is omnipresent or present everywhere at all times, the Eastern Church would instead say that God is uncontainable or unlimited. So instead of saying that he's infinite, they'll simply say God's not finite. Mm. Um, So just a different way of talking about things. They're intentionally not putting like explicit words to what it is. It's, It's more we can say what he isn't. We really can't say what he is because God is ultimately unknowable. Um, except for the ways that he's clearly knowable. I think it was one uh, uh, Eastern theologian put it this way, that um, everything about God is unknowable, except that he is unknowable. (laughs) (laughs) While both the Eastern and Western church value what they perceived as patristic tradition, the Eastern church saw this as essential for right doctrine. So this is one other huge distinction with the Eastern Church. Tradition is held so high. Even when we talk about the filioque, right, this dispute, the dispute is over the fact that this council said that only proceeds from the Father. And you changed that. You're changing what tradition said. So the Eastern Church really holds that tradition is on equal level with Scripture. Not good. Not good, but also actually this is one that's helpful to consider as well. Um, It's, we definitely are grateful um, as evangelicals um, from a Reformed tradition to hold to the primacy of Scripture. But we actually don't always recognize um, the fact that we need tradition as well. Um, For instance, when we think about canonicity, how we got scripture. Um, ultimately, right, it's God who put together the canon. 
and gave it to us and held it today. But he did that through tradition. He used the tradition of the early church, the handing down the councils, in order to get us to where we are today to even say that, like, sola scriptura. Hmm. Um, so it's one where we actually kind of stand on tradition, even though we hold to sola scriptura. Mm-hmm. So we just want to be careful not to kind of push against that. Basically, I, I think we want to empathize um, with the Eastern Church, um, valuing tradition, um, because we actually do value it, even if we don't realize it. It's just we want to always judge tradition against Scripture, as opposed to judging Scripture against tradition. So some people would kind of argue for like the opposite of that, which is like, what we don't need anything but our Bibles, and you know we can figure it all out. But it's like actually tradition's so helpful. These councils that we looked at yeah. the last several weeks that Evan walked us through, they did a lot of work <clears throat> to try to formulate theological uh, doctrines that were in accordance with Scripture. Mm-hmm. So we don't just follow the Nicene Creed because the Nicene Creed was determined in 381. We follow it because it is a good, true representation of the Scripture's teaching about the Trinity. Yeah. We're thankful for that tradition. I mean, likewise, I don't know if you guys ever prepare a sermon without leaning on the tradition that you get from different commentaries and... Mm -hmm. Different things, and those commentaries rely on the tradition as well that's been handed down. Mm-hmm. Like it's, yeah, it's more complex than we sometimes re- realize or remember. Uh, another thing, the Eastern Church asserted what's known as known as pentarchy. Um, so this is the the rule of five. Uh, this is what we were talking about with there being five bishops instead of just the Pope. Um, and so this was one of the key differences as well. <clears throat> Um, they believed that it was a cooperation between the five patristical um, sees or churches in Rome, Constantinople, Jerusalem, Antioch, and Alexandria. Um, additionally, the Eastern Church has this idea of deification or theosis. Um, this is a particular view of godliness or holiness. Um, and what they're, <clears throat> so they're not saying here that we ontologically become God. That would be polytheism or more persons the Trinity. But what they mean is that fundamental to salvation and acceptance with God is becoming like Christ through an ever deepening mystical union with him. Um, or as Timothy Ware puts it, man called, mankind is called to become by grace what God is by nature. So this is the way that they think of sanctification is actually becoming God, is what they're saying. And before we kind of too quickly, I guess, say, whoa, crazy, um, let's remember what Second Peter says in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Um, 
This idea of deification, they would say, is at the core of the incarnation. God became man in order that man might become divine. Um, as Athanasius of Alexandria wrote in On the Incarnation of the Word, um, he, Jesus, became man that we might be made God. Um, <clears throat> so, in general, um, the way they think about it, I think, is it's kind of a more optimistic view um, of sanctification than us as evangelicals would generally have, right? It's one where we're not going to be made perfect to be sinless um, until we reach eternity, until we're at heaven in Jesus. Whereas the Eastern Church is going to take more of a view that more of that is able to take place on earth now. Um, <clears throat> This takes us to the Crusades <clears throat> and ultimately Islam as well. Beyond the split of the East and West, churches would also see new challenges emerge from a new religion, Islam. So founded by Muhammad, who began preaching in Arabia uh, in the 7th century around 610, uh, the term Islam literally means submission to God. Islam requires its adherents to fulfill the five pillars. We're all probably fairly familiar with that. Profession of faith, there is one God, Allah, and that Muhammad was his greatest and last prophet. Prayer, five times a day. Almsgiving, right, regular giving of money. Fasting during Ramadan. Pilgrimage or Hajj, right? Pilgrimage to Mecca at least once during your lifetime. And so Islam grew rapidly. It took over major cities in the Byzantine Empire within a decade, including Jerusalem in 636. By 644, the Islamic Empire included all of Arabia, greater Syria, Cyprus, Persia, and Africa north of the Sahara. And had Muslims not lost two battles, one in France in 732 and one at Amisus in 863, all of Europe might have been Islamic. So after years of conquest by Islam, Christian rulers would declare war to take back the Holy Land and some of their lands that were lost. And this would become known as the Crusades. So the Crusades refer to campaigns by Latin Christians against the Seljuk Turks who had conquered the Holy Land in the 11th and 12th centuries. The first crusade in 1095 to 1099 conquered Jerusalem and ruled it for a couple decades. And this was really the only crusade that was kind of successful um, militarily from any perspective. Uh, the second crusade was from 1147 to 49. Third crusade, 1189 to 92. The fourth crusade, 1202 to 4. This is the one where Christians sacked Constantinople. Constantinople, really sad. And the fifth crusade was 1217 to 21. So notice the first crusade started in 1095. The last crusade, 1217, so over 100 years um, of this type of warfare back and forth. Uh, those who participated in a crusade were promised an indulgence. Um, they were promised that they could have their sins forgiven by participating, mm. that if they were to die on the way, they would be guaranteed salvation. Um, and those who died in a crusade were actually considered martyrs. 
The term crusade comes from the old French term, croiser, meaning to be signed with the cross. Another fun one for Evan to mispronounce. As each knight um, who committed to a crusade had an image of the cross sewn into his clothes. And so, right, all the first crusade was a success militarily. The other four ended either in failure or draw. Um, at times, even large groups of children were involved, and tragically, many died. <clears throat> so, not, not a great period. Um, I think one thing that is helpful to note is that, um, right, <clears throat> there's a few things going on here. One is that, at least at the start, some of this militarily is reasonable like to try to reconquer lands that have been taken. Um, but at the same time, there's lots of horrible things that took place as well. And so um, we also have to remember that grave sin of people who claim the name of Christ, like there's lots of sin involved in that um, in how this took place. And that's just what it is, a sin. Um, also, sometimes the crusade was uh, falling into the temptation of confusing uh, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Um, and so focusing on political and territory gain um, over gaining hearts. Um, and so sometimes people will push against the crusade and use that as a reason to not believe in Christianity. But that falsely confuses actions of sinners with the teaching of Christianity. Um, again, this can falsely assume that Christianity either stands or falls based on the behavior of people who claim that name instead of whether or not Jesus really rose from the dead in history. That's what Christianity stands or falls on, as Paul tells us. Yeah, but the, the Crusades were not... Uh, I mean, I suppose they were, they were used as a moral, ethical cause to regain Jerusalem, right? And regain the lost land. But ultimately, what was the Christian motive for doing that, other than regaining Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem, but also other lands as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and part of that too, there are a lot of areas that were controlled by Muslims, where like the Christians yeah. minority were not be treated were not being treated well. Like so, there's there's some legitimate reasons, at least for the early Crusades, um, and some really bad reasons for it mm -hmm. as well. But I mean, the, the Islamic negative response to the Crusades happened after, from the Second and Third Crusade onward, didn't they? That was where the real persecution happened because of the persecution on both sides. There were a lot of horrors that were committed in the Crusades. I, by both sides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but before that, you were saying that there was years of conquest. Yeah, Islam had been basically taking over Christian lands for, de or for centuries before this took place. Mm. So it's one where it's, it's not as, like, it's an incorrect view, I think, to just say that Islam simply responded negatively because Christians came and attacked. Um, it's one where they had been, right, remember, Islam almost took over all of Europe. Um, that's conquest long before the Crusades. And, then, um, and yeah, four, it seems like 400 years goes yeah. by between Muhammad's preaching and the first crusade so that's obviously yeah also time of the spread of islam yeah as an empire so it, it doesn't 
remove the fact that plenty of atrocities took place, and I'm sure that uh, during the Crusades, Christians instigated things that brought about um, negative responses by Muslims, but I don't think it's fair to say that the initial um, coming and trying to take back lands that had been taken uh, is necessarily entirely wrong. It can probably be done wrongly and done for wrong reasons. That's what uh, I'm saying. It yeah. started out as a moral yeah. ethical issue of Christianity versus Islam, but but as it progressed, just became just bad. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a bit like we see in the Old Testament when the Israelites fought other, you know, their enemies. If it wasn't the will of God, they yeah. failed. Yeah. If they didn't confer with God before yeah. they attacked them. Uh, even though it seemed like a good thing to do, yeah. in God's eyes, they hadn't trusted him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, now we turn to uh, doctrine in the West, focus on a couple of the main theologians um, that were heavy hitters at this time. So first, Anselm, who lived from 1033 to 1109. So he was a monk and a scholastic. He was born in 1033 into an Italian noble family in Aosta, Italy, the far northwest of Italy, near the Swiss and French border. Around 1060, after the death of his father, Anselm crossed the Alps and joined the monastery of Beck in northern France. Then from 1093 to 1109, Anselm became the Archbishop of Canterbury in Britain. He was summoned to replace his former former spiritual director, Lefranc. Um, however, he would conflict with the king often in these 16 years, leading to his exile for a total of eight years um, during the time he was archbishop. <clears throat> Which king? Uh, I'm not sh There was a couple different kings um, during that period. I think William II was one of them. Um, but basically it was conflicts over... Separation of church and state. During this period, um, the Pope was trying to basically maintain authority um, over the church. And so while simultaneously all these different kings in different places were trying to get authority over the church, specifically over um, appointing bishops uh, was one of the key things that they were vying for authority over. This actually resulted in Anselm initially not going uh, to Britain. Uh, because during that time, the current king was trying to appoint his own bishop, and if Anselm was to go, he likely would have been killed, um, because the pope was trying to appoint him. Um, <clears throat> for major works, Anselm's aim was to produce a theological synthesis that moved beyond merely citing authorities. And so he's actually called the father of scholasticism for his broad and systematic approach to doctrine. Uh, Faith-seeking understanding is an often cited mantra used by scholastics and was coined by Anselm. Anselm wrote a vigorous defense of the filioque in De Procession Spiritus Sancti. He also wrote more practical works such as the Monologium and the Proslogion, um, which were not intellectual exercises or truly academic works, but rather meant to assist monks in daily reflection on the faith. In Anselm's Monologion, uh, it's an attempt to meditate on the essence of God and culminates in discussion of God's Trinitarian nature. 
He takes his cue on wanting to meditate on God, then moves to logical reflection upon God. Um, And it's interesting, for Anselm, it seems there's not really much of a difference between meditating on God and logically reflecting on God. Um, For him, it's kind of the same thing. Uh, The Proslogion, written in 1078, has been called the great charter of medieval Christian philosophy. This meditation on God culminates in the famous ontological argument for God's existence. The argument is basically that um, if we want to think about what God is, define God, God would be that which nothing greater can be conceived. So basically the greatest possible idea you could conceive of, that's what God is. And then if we think about that, he thinks, okay, what's greater, existence or non-existence. Since existence is a greater thing than non-existence, if God is the greatest thing that can be conceived, that greatest thing also has to exist. And therefore, God also has to exist. <laughs> it's a funny philosophical experiment. Mm-hmm. It's wow. pretty intriguing. It's hard to find a way around it. <clears throat> the whole idea of proof was somewhat odd in the 11th century. Um, So it's led some to query whether Anselm was really trying to prove God's existence at all. Um, The Proslogion reads very similarly to Augustine's Confessions. For instance, he says, Thou therefore fillest and embraces all things. Thou art before and beyond all things. For before they were made, thou art. But how art thou beyond all things? For in what way canst thou be beyond those things that have no end? And yet, though it's theologically rich, it was intensely devotional. I pray, O God, that I may know thee, that I may love thee, so that I may rejoice in thee. And if I cannot do this to the full in this life, at least let me go forward from day to day until that joy comes to fullness. Another of Anselm's major works was his Cure de Homo, or Why God Became Man. It's about 33,000 words in length, and structurally, Cure to Homo is divided into two different books. The first book proves the impossibility that any should be saved without Christ, and the second book shows that every man should enjoy a happy immortality, both in body and in soul, but that it could not be fulfilled unless God became man. So basically just, why did Jesus have to become man? Why did God have to become man in Christ? So here Anselm makes his arguments largely from reason and not with explicit references to scripture. Uh, Anselm contends that God made man for happiness, yet remission of sin is necessary for reaching this end. So basically, God wanted us to be happy, but sin keeps us from being happy. Uh, And so we needed a way to get rid of sin in order to be happy. But he does this primarily just from a logical way of thinking as opposed to by citing scripture. So in some ways, it's kind of similar to what Piper's, you know, says that God's most glorified in us when we when we're most satisfied, when we get most enjoyment out, out yeah. of knowing Him. Yeah. Doesn't Piper like sort of quote like Jonathan Edwards in that? Who I'm sure he like. You know, yeah. Nothing new under the sun. <laughs> yeah. Nothing new. Yeah. Additionally, Anselm contends that the essence of sin is dishonoring God. So sin is nothing other than to give God. What is, um, sorry, sin is nothing other than not to give God what is owed him. It's from Cure to Homo. 
He argues that God's honor requires that sin must be paid for. God cannot simply look the other way. It's not fitting, as he puts it, than for God to receive into heaven a human sinner who has not paid recompense. He quotes this, Consider it then an absolute certainty that God cannot remit a sin unpunished without recompense, that is, without the voluntary paying off of a debt, and that a sinner cannot, without this, attain to a state of blessedness. Since we owe God obedience by nature of being his subjects, our obedience today cannot pay for our sins yesterday. So basically we're in a state where there's no chance for us to save ourselves because obeying God isn't a good work. It's simply what we're required to do as his subjects. So there's no way for us to right the wrongs of the sins before because we can never do more than we ultimately are required to do by default. There's no hope of self-salvation. When you are rendering to God something which you owe him, even if you have not sinned, you ought not reckon this to be recompense for what you owe him for sin. If in order that I may not sin, I owe to him my own being and all that I am capable of. Even when I do not sin, I have nothing to give him in recompense for sin. In the second part of the book, then, Anselm reaches a logical conclusion, arguing that the God-man is necessary for salvation. Uh, In a one-sentence summary of the book, Anselm writes, If therefore, as is agreed, it is necessary that the heavenly city should have its full complement made up of members of the human race, and this cannot be the case if the recompense of which we have spoken is not paid, the recompense for sin, which no one can pay except God, and no one ought to pay except man, it is necessary that a God-man should pay it. So why should we consider Anselm? As John Stott notes in his book, The Cross of Christ, the greatest merits of Anselm's exposition are that he perceived clearly the extreme gravity of sin as a willful rebellion against God in which the creature affronts the majesty of his creator. Second, the unchanging holiness of God as unable to condone any violation of his honor. And third, he explains the unique perfections of Christ. So in other words... Anselm really laid some of the key theological concepts that would later be included in the reformational doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. It's what we hold to as a key part of the gospel. Um, Oh man, we just don't have enough time, guys. All right, we've got just quick on two more people, just on Bernard of Clairvaux and Aquinas. If anyone has to run, I understand that. It's just probably... Three more minutes. Remember, Bernard de Clairvaux was a monk in the Cistercian order, and Martin Luther called him one of the great doctors of the church. Uh, That's saying something from Luther. Also, Calvin frequently quotes him positively um, in his institutes. Um, For our purposes, we'll just briefly look at one work on loving God. So as the title indicates, On Loving God is a treatise on why and how we should love God. Uh, Bernard claims that God himself is the reason why he is to be loved. Uh, It includes several scriptural quotations, particularly from the Song of Songs. And Bernard warns his audience of loving too much the things of this world or any kind of material good. Um, 
Bernard actually details four kinds of love in this. The first love, he explains, is the love of self, whereby man loved himself for his own sake. And he says this is natural love. The second degree of love is where man loves God for his own advantage and not yet for God's sake. The third degree of love is a just love because man renders what he has received. This man loves God because God is good, not simply because God is good to him. And then the final degree of love, which Bernard declares impossible in this life, is man loves himself for the sake of God. This degree of love is complete self-abandonment where the lover is so inebriated with divine love and hastens towards God. <clears throat> Thomas Aquinas. So Thomas Aquinas was, lived somewhere from 1224 to 1274. Thomas Aquinas was born near Naples, Italy, somewhere around 1224 in the county of Aquinas. So Thomas of Aquino, Aquinas. Um, around the age of 16, he joined the Order of the Dominicans, uh, which, remember, was a teaching and preaching order. And this, therefore, committed him to a life of study uh, for purpose of instructing others. Uh, he only joined after his family kidnapped him and sought to disqualify him from the order by attempting to seduce him with a prostitute. Bad parenting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thomas, however, was firm in his commitment to study. Um, Aquinas wrote several major works of theology, philosophy, and commentaries on the scripture. He's especially well known for his Summa Theologica, which is a massive work that explores various themes and is a major work in classic theology. Um, it's got all kinds of things in it, including what would happen if a mouse ate some of the Eucharist that had been transformed into the body of Christ. Important things to consider. Uh, Aquinas is known for his five arguments for the existence of God, a theory of natural law, and sacerdotalism. So sacerdotalism is the belief that the Holy Spirit infuses grace into Christians through their participation in the sacraments. Right? This is the view that's strongly held by Roman Catholicism. Um, one of the other things that Thomas is known for is, uh, they would say, baptizing Aristotle. So the Greek philosopher Aristotle, um, his works had been kind of reclaimed during this period and refound. And Aquinas took a lot of his thoughts and sought to apply that to Christian theology. Uh, though Aquinas' works are mixed with many errors, many also show doctrinal consistency with the scriptures and those who came before his commentary on John's Gospel, for example, shows a theological, a theological consistency with Augustine, Nicaea, and the rich Trinitarian tradition in the Western tradition. So a few reflections on what we've talked about today. First, this time marked a period of remarkable changes and new challenges. Misunderstandings and misrepresentations abounded, and the rift between East and West grew even wider. The rise of Islam had some declare war for religious ends, and doctrinal errors developed. In some ways, this was compounded by the East and West schism. New errant theology was introduced and gained ground in many churches. Third, though many factors threatened and diminished the visible unity of the church, 
This period was not without gospel witness. Those such as Anselm, Bernard, and Thomas Aquinas attested to the truth, though not purely. And so we'll look at more examples of this with different Reformation forerunners in the coming weeks. Sorry for going so long. Thanks for paying attention and asking good questions. Let me pray for us.